chapter 2. And that starts on page 953 of your pew Bible if you want to, uh, to follow along. Uh, we can't get into the whole book, but there are two major themes that come out of uh, the early chapters of Hosea. And so I think it would be good to give a little bit of background as to what's going on in the, in the story. And also uh, set some other context ahead of time, just so you kind of have a, a good reference point uh, as we talk about this, this uh, great book. And in particular, uh, the early chapters here that seem to talk a lot about uh, the nation of Israel, but also the Messiah in an indirect way. But we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. The first thing I, I want to mention is that individual people are saved and lost. Individual people are saved and lost. Now you may say, that's brilliant, Dave. I think we already knew that. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because what we're going to hear God speaking about Israel in some really hot, scorching words about the nation of Israel, and that he is angry at their idolatry, and he is angry at their rebellion, and he talks about punishments, and he talks about the loss of blessing, and he talks about you know, his, his anger toward them, and you think, well, gosh, what about the, the people who were true believers in the midst of this failing nation? Has he turned aside from them? And of course, the answer is no. It would be much the same way that uh, when God says, all Israel shall be saved, and I have made promises to the nation of Israel, and I'm going to bring them back into the land, and I'm going to bless them in every way, then you might think, well, if all Israel is to be saved, does that mean that non-believing Jews are just going to be saved because they're Jews? And the answer to that question is no, too. The individual is still of primary importance as far as our relationship to the Lord, okay? It uh, doesn't matter what nation we're born into. It doesn't matter what house we're born into. We could be born into a Christian family where the, where the family takes us to church every Sunday. Does that mean we're automatically saved? No, it doesn't. That's an individual thing. Uh, you could be born into an atheist household. doesn't mean you're an atheist just by virtue of where you were born. Uh, so the individual is saved and lost. As a matter of fact, if you look at uh, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, and there's a fancy Latin term that the theologians threw out there called the Proto-Evangelicum, which means the first gospel. And so you think of that and you think, well, gospel, good news, that's New Testament. That's Jesus, right? Yes, it is, but it's also the Old Testament. That's where it started. Christos in the Greek is Christ, Mashiach in the Hebrew is Messiah. It's the same title of the same Lord. And he was announced right when the problem started. Right when sin entered the world, God promised a fix. He promised a remedy. He promised to restore that which was lost. And he used the personal pronoun he. And it's a supernatural uh, announcement of a supernatural Savior. Same Savior. So technically speaking, you say, when did the Christian faith start? Well, it really was first announced in Genesis, right? Uh, I suppose if you even want to get more technical, it was discussed before the foundation of the world, too. Um, so, so individual people are saved and lost. But what about the entities that God creates? In order to facilitate the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15, God created a special entity to see that promise through. And that was the nation of Israel. And after Jesus came and died on the cross, rose from the dead, he created the church to also have 
another type of mission, to be an entity, to bring the word of God, to proclaim the Savior has come with salvation and eternal life. So I guess the question can be, or is, can God be hurt and angry and frustrated at an entity that he creates? The answer is yes, because we're going to see it. We're going to see it. Think of it this way. Let's say you're someone who you start a business from the ground up. It's, it's you know, nothing, and you turn it into something great. Um, a lot of people are employed. Uh, the business is really great for the people who buy the product, let's say. It's, it, it improves people's lives. You've got a family atmosphere. The community is helped because the business owner gives back to the community and so forth. And it's really a force for good, this company. And then one day you sit back and you say, I'm going to retire. I'm going to retire. I'm going to turn this business over to my kids and let them run it. And after a certain time, you see that that business is going in a, in a bad direction. And so you as the owner, you go to your kids and you say, hey, um, you're doing this wrong and you're doing this wrong. You need to come back to doing it the way we did before. And so you warn and you try to direct and you try to uh, lead, but they don't listen. And so the character that this business once had is now gone. And so you as the owner, you say, well, rather than continue to see what I created, continue to go the way it's going, I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to dissolve it. I'm going to end it, at least for now. But I'm going to do that because it no longer is doing the thing that I wanted it to do. And so this is in a small microcosm, I suppose, what is happening with God and the nation of Israel at this point. Because God has created Israel to do a specific thing and to be a specific, have a specific character. And they're going in the opposite direction. And we'll get into that in the text in just a little bit. So that's the first thing I wanted to lay on your heart. The second thing, when we read some of the verses in here, it's important to know, beloved, that God's Word is an integrated message system. Okay? God's Word is an integrated message. Every number, every detail, every place name is there by supernatural design. When we look at the heavens, we look at the universe, we look at nature, we look at life, we see unparalleled examples of purposeful design. It's interesting, just as a little aside here, because uh, one of my favorite things to study is, uh, is science and, um, and God's creative power and you know, the Darwinists and the materialists forever have never really had a, a good a logical or scientific basis to base their conclusions on, but they still do, even though it doesn't work, with their hope that as, in the, as the future goes, as we get more and more technology, it'll probably bear out our theory, okay? Here's the weird thing. As the technology gets more and more sophisticated, it only puts on display more God's beautiful purposeful design in every single thing in the heavens and in life. And as you drill down into life more and more and more, you see so much evidence of it. So the technology has only gone to show the master artisan and designer that God is. He's self-existent and eternal? Yes. He is changeless, timeless, spaceless? Yes. He is unimaginably powerful. But he's also a master designer and he's done the same thing in his word. He has designed his word so that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that what we have 
is not a contrivance or a fraud. God lavishes, he lavishes his word with his divine signature so that we know that this is truly from him because what we see evidenced in sacred scripture is something that man, no matter how hard he tries or no matter how clever he is, could ever concoct on his own. The Bible is the word of God and God has gone to great lengths to show us that. So keep that in mind. Um, third thing, one of the words that is going to be used in this uh, is, is an unpleasant word. Uh, and I'll, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just, we'll just as, the, as we get to the text, you'll, you'll know what I mean. Go ahead. Go ahead? Okay. Uh, the word is whore. And uh, it's, it's a nasty word. It, it conjures up something really awful, but God is trying to hit us right between the eyes here. He, he's using that word for a very specific purpose. And so we'll, um, we'll get to that in due course. Uh, the next thing is that God uses the idiom of marriage to convey some of his most intimate truths. And we see some of the beautiful aspects of that, and then sometimes we see uh, when gone wrong the unpleasant aspect of it. Uh, so we'll get into that in, in just a little bit as well. Uh, God is the husband of Israel, you know, and, and, and Jesus Christ is the bridegroom of the bride, which is the church, okay? Okay, now with those things, let me give you a quick background, and then we'll jump into the text. Back around 900 B.C., uh, first of all, when Israel was created, they were one nation, right? Israel was one nation. And then with all the infighting and the skirmishes and so forth, it was around 900 B.C. that they split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and you had the southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Hosea is basically a prophet to the northern kingdom. And he does have asides that he makes to the southern kingdom. And then we sit here today and we say we're studying history. We see some of the prophetic value. We see the Messiah brought up. But what else can we learn from this? I think there's a lot we can learn from this as individuals and as a, as, as a church, okay? Because we see some of the things that went wrong. But Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom. And God is warning them, warning them repeatedly that you are, that this northern kingdom is engaging in the worst kind of idolatry, going after false gods, rebellion, forgetting about the Lord. And so the warning is change, repent, come back, or big problems are on the horizon for you as a nation. Okay? Now here's what ended up happening. Um, somewhere around 700 B.C., the dates may not be exactly right. I'm kind of ballparking it here. But um, the nation of Assyria subsumed the northern kingdom of Israel. And so, uh, did you ever hear of the Samaritans? Okay, well, the Assyrians, with the assimilation of the Jews from the northern kingdom of Israel, um, you know, they intermarried and they had what was called the Samaritans. That's why there was this racial enmity between many of the Jews and the Samaritans, because they viewed them as half-breeds. You know, it's a terrible thing, but that's how they viewed it. And who came and set the record straight on that? Jesus Christ, that's right, that's right. Um, so, here's another thing to keep in mind. Imagine you're someone who has a spouse, and that spouse cheats on you on a regular basis. Does it with impunity? 
does it without caring, does it without repentance, does it right under your nose. Would you be hurt? Would you be angry? Yeah. Beloved, God is too. Because this is the situation. So God could just tell us that, right? I mean, he could just say, hey, you know, Israel, you're committing spiritual adultery by going after these false gods, and you've forgotten about me. But God wants to drive the point home even more. So once again, he uses the idiom of marriage. But then he goes one step beyond that. He tells Hosea, the prophet to the northern kingdom, you know, he calls him to be a prophet. Okay, I can do that. Oh, Hosea, by the way, I want you to do something else. What's that? I want you to go out and marry a whore. Excuse me? Yeah, that's what God said. Go out and marry a harlot. Marry a harlot. Oh, and by the way, when you start having children, here's what you're going to name your children. The first child comes along, you're going to name that child Jezreel, which is kind of a play on words. It can mean either scattered or sown. In this case, it means scattered. Oh, and then when you have your next child, you're going to name that child Loruhamah which means no mercy. And then you'll have another child and you will name that child Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Imagine getting that call <laughs> if you're Hosea. Marry a harlot, name your kids, scattered, no mercy, and not my people. But he did. He went out and did it. God is driving the point home, beloved, that from the people reading it then Hearing about it then in any subsequent generation who would look back is seeing just where God is in this situation. He is the faithful spouse while Israel is a serial cheater. Okay? And it's, and it's something that's made God very angry and, and hurt. Okay? So now we can, um, with, with all that as background, with that as background, let's uh, jump into chapter 2 of Hosea. It's interesting to point out, too, folks, is that you see this pattern in the Bible where God will have, again, these hot, scorching words for Israel where he will just say, you have done this and you have done that. You've profaned my name in the na among the nations. You have, um, you know, you have rebelled. You have gone after false gods. And then there's that little word, nevertheless, or, or but. But I made promises to you. And I'm going to keep that promise. And so one day, you'll be restored. You'll be back in the land. You will be my people and I will be your God. Good things are coming. Great things are coming. But there's a lot of bumps in the road along the way, and that's putting it very, very mildly. So we, in Hosea 1, we get this really, really rough scenario. But then God ends chapter 1 with a blessing. Okay, so as we go into chapter 2, and, and, and the chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired. That's man-made. So I think that the chapter division here is maybe in the wrong place. Um, it kind of breaks the train of thought because I think the first verse in chapter 2 probably should have been on the tail end of uh, chapter 1. But be that as it may. So chapter 2 of Hosea. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy. But then God sort of goes back and revisits this situation, and he adds some more details to it. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face, 
and adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are the children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. See, what God's just done here, he's added another layer of insult to this whole thing. So not only do you have the, the, the cheating spouse who, again, does it in an unrepentant fashion, right under God's nose, with impunity. Now, all the blessings that, that, uh, that God has given Israel, they're turning around and giving thanks to false gods for the security and the blessings they have. So that would be, again, akin to that you know, marital situation between a, 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 you know, two people where the cheating spouse, all the security and love and stability that the one spouse provides, the cheating spouse turns around and says, you had nothing to do with it. I got it from them. Okay? And folks, you know, false gods and, and idols and statues and all that, you know, that's, that's, that's idolatry. There's no question, but there's a lot of other forms of idolatry too. Are there not? Uh, you know, there's a book in the library, if you ever want to read it, it's called Stealing from God, because it kind of it conjures up the, the same thought, because you have a lot of people who, they're smart people, but they take the gift of logic and the gift of morality and the gift of love, and they claim it for themselves and then deny that God had anything to do with it. It's, it's really a self-referential absurdity in a logical sense. Uh, Frank Turek, the, uh, the writer of that book, he said, um, imagine that you're, you have to get across a precipice. You're on this side of the precipice. You've got to get over that. And so you walk across a bridge to get from one side to the other. But the whole time you're walking across the bridge, you deny it's there. This is what it's like who, people who steal from God. And much like we saw here with Israel, all the gifts that God gives to the people, they turn around and say, no. My other lovers or gods gave it to me. Therefore, verse 6, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Studying Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he said that anytime God puts up a hedge, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because he is trying to narrow the way. He is trying to, you know, put those stumbling blocks and those thorns and thistles so we come back to him. I mean, folks, how many people do you know who really had to get a whop on the head before they come back to the Lord? I know I did. I know I did over 20 years ago. You know, I was going my own way. And I think God tried, he tried, and he tried, and I said, yeah, yeah, okay, and then the little crisis had passed, and, you know, and then I'd be right back at my life. And then one day he said, okay, enough's enough, and he really put a hedge up, and he really put a narrowing of the path, that I had to go back to him. So I think God does these things, it's a good thing, it's because he loves us that he puts these hedges, and this is exactly what he's doing for the nation of Israel here. Verse 8, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. 
which they used for Baal. Uh, this is interesting here because when you read that line, and she did not know, it's not an innocent thing, okay? It's not a situation where, well, gee whiz, if I had only known that's what you were trying to do, Lord, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been an idolater. No, I, I, would have, I, I would have worshipped you, but I just didn't know. That's not what's in view here. In, in contextually speaking, when we read uh, in Hosea chapter 4, what does God say? Famous, famous verse. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Again, is it, well, gosh, I, I wasn't in class that day, or it's too difficult to understand, or, or you didn't tell me, you didn't explain it enough? No. You look at the very next verse in, in Hosea 4, and what does it say? Because you have rejected knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you've rejected the knowledge. The evidence of God is overwhelming. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. That in nature, in conscience, in moral values, uh, the evidence of God is overwhelming, but people suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. The knowledge is there. It's readily evident. It's readily available. But we push it down. People shove it down. That's what the word means. It's katakane. It's in the Greek. To hold down with force the knowledge of God. So my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. In verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were there to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the fields shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, which is a big false god, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So, the beginning of chapter 2, God restates the problem. He adds another layer of the insult to him, that what the northern kingdom is doing. Then he says, okay, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to hedge up her way. And then he lists how he's going to do it and that there's bad things that are ahead. Uh, and that's going to bring it to a critical point that we get to in verse uh, 14. Therefore, I will allure her. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Just read Revelation chapter 12. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Very interesting thing. That's why I asked Pastor Spencer to title the message, The Valley of Trouble, The Valley of Hope. The Valley of Achor is an interesting thing that Jose, Hosea uh, relates to here. You remember the story in Joshua? The Israelites were going through and they were conquering all of these uh, pagan nations and so, so on and so forth. They get to the nation of Ai and they think, you know, they're just a cakewalk, right? They got a little, probably a little puffy. And Ai beat them, beat the Israelites. 
And Joshua goes before the Lord and he falls on his face before the Lord. What's gone wrong? What have we done? And God was indignant with Joshua. He said, why are you on your face? And, I, I, you know, the way the text is with the exclamation points and so forth, this is the idea you get that God was, was not real happy. Get off your face, he says. Rise up. You've got a sin problem. That's why you were defeated. And so the victory cannot happen until the sin is dealt with. Is that not true of us, beloved? We can have all the money in the world. We can have all the riches. We can be popular. We can have all the comforts. We, you know, everything you can think of that the world says is a great thing. You can have all of that. But there's no true victory unless your sin is dealt with. And that can only come from Jesus Christ. So this is what is in view here. And so there's no victory until the sin is dealt with. And so this guy named Achan, he was the guy in Joshua. They found out he had stolen a bunch of stuff. He buried the truth. They had to take care of him. And it was, you know, you read uh, Joshua, it was not a pleasant thing that took place, but they stoned him to death and then burned him and, and, and the goods that, uh, that he had stolen. Um, and then they moved on. So what Hosea is saying here is that through all this trouble, there's a valley of trouble they're going through, but it's going to lead to a valley of hope. When I think of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, it's... it's it almost breaks my heart every time I, I say it or think about it. But when, um, but when Jesus prays before the cross, what does he say? He said, now my heart is troubled. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Our Lord <laughs> going before the Father and saying, and now my heart is troubled. But what does he tell us? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. He took that trouble for us. The valley of trouble came through him so that we could have a valley of hope. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, there's a little microcosm there. What, what does he say? They were going to arrest all of them. Jesus said, no, I'm the one you're looking for. Let them go their way. Let them go their way. And so Jesus is our valley of hope. He takes the valley of trouble on himself because he is ultimately our valley, uh, valley of hope that leads to eternal life. Now, in closing, I want to jump ahead to chapter 3 because uh, I find this to be, in, in chapter 3 is a very short, uh, short chapter, but I just find this to be uh, so moving, so moving. So, Israel is on a bad path. Um, you know, God eventually lets them be subsumed by the northern king, by the kingdom of Syria, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, you know, the northern kingdom of Israel, they had every king they had was rotten to the core. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, they had a couple of good kings. They would meet with a similar fate probably a century later when they were taken over by the Babylonians. And then, of course, they were returned to the land, but they never really had sovereignty again. But they remained until the Messiah came, and then there was uh, some years that passed, and then eventually they, were, they lost the temple in 70 A.D. and were eventually scattered to uh, all parts of the world as God had prophesied. Uh, but then we, we reflect back here on Hosea chapter 3. When this chapter starts off, Gomer, who was Hosea's wife, 
she goes out and starts this harlotry all over again. She just goes out and starts it all over again. And what did God say? Did he say, hey, forget it. I gave her her chance. You know, you gave her her chance. It's over. I gave these people their chance. It's over. Forget it. But what does God tell Hosea with Gomer? He says, go back and get her. Go back and get her. I know she's doing all this again. Go back and get her. But here's an operative word here. It's not just go back and get her. It's not like, you know, uh, Gomer, you've been a naughty wife. Come back home now. What does God tell Hosea to do? To buy her back. To buy her back. What does that mean? Let's read the text here very quickly. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is adulterous, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. That's a bizarre thing I won't get into. Um, truly, it is. Uh, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lecketh of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Buy her back. What did that mean, folks? That meant she became a slave. So with all of the sin that she had committed, all the things that started to go wrong, all the things she was doing in her life, now it just wasn't a matter of being with a bunch of different lovers and so forth. Now she had gone so far down, she was a slave. Chuck Missler, I, I, I loved the way he, he framed this. He says, you know, uh, back then there were three ways you could become a slave. Through conquest, through birth, and indebtedness. So, you, you know, you're, you're a people group and you get subjugated by another people group. They come and they take the people and they make them slaves out of them. And then if, you know, among those slaves, if children are born, they're sort of born in. They sort of inherit the slavery. So they're born into it. Or people were indebted. They had a debt they couldn't pay, so they became slaves. I'll never forget what Missler said. He said, we're all Gomer. That's all of us. We're conquered by the world, we're born into sin, and we got a debt we can't pay. When I look at the Bible, and I mentioned earlier about the Bible being an integrated whole, you know, sometimes you ever ask yourself, why does God include certain phrases in here, certain words? Is it really necessary? Um... Isn't it enough to know that Hosea went and bought back Gomer? But what does God say? So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lecketh of barley. That's, a, that's about a bushel and a half. And again, I, I go back to Dr. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who said 15 shekels of silver and a bushel and a half of barley, the bushel and a half would cost about 15 pieces of silver. So you get 15 pieces of silver and 15 pieces of silver, is 30 pieces of silver. And that was the exact uh, price that Judah or Judas received to betray Jesus to go to the cross for us. And God is making a connection here, folks. There's no reason to put that in there other than he is trying to clue us into something very important here, to connect the dots. Remember, the Bible is an integrated whole. It's a beautiful allusion to the cross. Only God tells Hosea, go buy her back. This is exactly what he told Jesus Christ. Go buy him back. 
buy them back. They're just like Gomer. When Gomer was on that trading block back then, they brought you out naked. And it's not just an absence of clothes either, folks. It's, it, it's that, but it's more. There's no dignity. There's nothing to offer. You're stripped bare with nothing to defend yourself, nothing to combat things with. That's it. You are who you are. And that's us, too. We have nothing to offer to save ourselves, right? We, we can't work for our salvation. We can't offer a defense. Hey, wait a minute, God. You know, when, when I was doing this, uh, I have a reason for doing that. No, there's no defense. We're naked before the Lord. Um, we've got nothing to offer, and we can't withstand the punishment that's coming our way. So God says to Jesus Christ, the Son, go buy them back. But it was a lot more than 30 pieces of silver, was it not? It was his blood. And when I think about what Jesus endured on our behalf, the physical beatings and so forth were just a, a small part of it. But uh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, and yet that's how much he loves us. It's incredible. But that is how much we are loved by God that he says, go buy them back. It would have been just as easy to say, forget it. They're hopeless. They're worthless. But he says, no, I love them. Go buy them back. And that's exactly uh, what Christ did for us. It's just an amazing thing how all of this fits together. And I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm, I'm, hope, I'm not going too long. Um, but um, what can we learn as individuals? What can we learn as, as a church? Well, beloved, Israel will be brought back. This is a promise of God. Anybody says, is God done with Israel? All they have to do is read Romans 9, 10, and 11. And they'll know that God is not done with Israel. Paul shouts it from the rooftops. Is God done with Israel? May it never be. So Israel still has a future. And a big down payment on that prophetic utterance was uh, May 14, 1948, when Israel was reborn as a nation. Uh, so that's a big thing. There's a tipping point that's reached. It was reached with the northern kingdom of Israel. It was reached with the southern kingdom of Judah. It'll eventually happen with the church, okay? And you read about in 2 Thessalonians the apostasy that will come when the, 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 the church has lost its saltiness. It, it has lost its, um, lost its ability to be effective the way God wanted it to be. And, um, but we don't know when that is. So just like I think, I can't remember who, it may have been uh, Orbert who was reading and praying, but that uh, we got a job to do. We've got to stay focused and do exactly what Jesus Christ said in Revelation chapter 3 about the church of Philadelphia. You have not denied my name, Jesus said. You have not denied my name or given up on my word. You stand firm on my word, and you have not denied my name. Therefore, you have a little strength, and I will save you from this time that's coming upon the world to try all who live in the world. And so, not out of arrogance or out of conceit, but out of obedience, you know, as a church, we've got affairs to conduct. We're the vessel that God created to do a specific thing on the earth, so we really need to do it. We really need to do that and, uh, and pray and pray uh, that God blesses it. Thanks very much, folks. You know, one thing I love about uh, the Word of God...